Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Tonight, we begin a new worship series. It's called Once Upon a Time, Meet the Ancestors. And over the next six Sundays, we'll be reading six stories featuring our ancestors in faith from the Hebrew Bible, that is to say, pre-Jesus, because our understanding of God is built on their understanding of God. And everything we know about God, in some sense, we know because of their experiences. And so I hope that you will join me in a kind of fast and furious romp through the Hebrew Bible over these next several weeks. We'll be looking at specific stories that help us understand meta-movements in that narrative over several hundred years. And we begin tonight with a formative story, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife, Sarai, and his brother's son, Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Reading the biblical stories of our ancestors in faith, requires a particular discipline that tonight I'm going to call letting the story be about what it's about. You already know how to do this, and I can demonstrate. Imagine that your BFF FaceTimed you early this morning while still in bed to tell you excitedly about the terrific date they went on last night. Imagine we are not in a pandemic. Your BFF said, 
oh my gosh, oh my gosh, they were so funny and kind and their voice makes my insides all quivery and it turns out they also prefer Star Trek to Star Wars and they've already texted this morning to see if we could go for coffee this afternoon and I mean, I think there could really be something here. I can't believe it. It's been so long since I felt this good about a potential relationship. And then you said, wait, what? Since when do you prefer Star Trek to Star Wars? And you pressed your bedheaded friend to make their defense now. That would be a failure to let the story be about what it's about, see? And a failure of friendship as well. In a different conversation, at a different time, you could certainly raise the debate about this very important issue, but for now, in that early morning FaceTime call, the point is your friend is happy and excited and wants to share that with you so that you can be happy and excited too. Likewise, for the biblical narratives featuring our ancestors in faith, we have to practice getting clear about what the stories are about. This story from Genesis 12 is a terrific case study for that. First off, there are two hugely problematic data in that story that probably set off your internal ethical alarm bells while I was reading. One is, the first one, you noticed with raised eyebrows that when Abram and his family set off on his God-spoke-to-me adventure, they packed their stuff, and they also packed, quote, the persons whom they had acquired in Haran. In other words, our ancestor was a slave owner. And perhaps you are disappointed that the biblical text treats this not so big, <laughs> treats this as a not big deal, so matter-of-factly. Or perhaps you are intrigued that the biblical text bothers to mention the enslaved persons at all because the Bible is interesting like that. It tends to notice those who usually go unnoticed. It tends to mention those who usually go unmentioned. But either way, you wish it were not true, Abram's slaveholding identity, because the legacy of slavery among our religious forebears is still, to this very day, an unhealed infection in our religious life and a contagious virus mutated by racism that has passed from the church into our national life. Hugely problematic datum number two is... God's promise to give the Canaanites land to Abram, which calls to mind every time in global history that ambitious settlers have displaced or disappeared indigenous people to claim natural resources for themselves. The Bible and the church stoked white Europeans' sense of manifest destiny on this continent. And moreover, even today, bad theology fuels bad ecology, supporting our sense that the planet belongs to us to use and abuse and ruin for our own gain and comfort. Consequences be damned. Now, both of these recognitions are very, very important for Christian readers of Genesis 12 to note and 
for us to deal with honestly at the right time. But I hope you can hear me say, these are not what Genesis 12 is about. Like, if Abram were our BFF, and he called us up with joyful excitement in his voice to tell us about this amazing encounter he just had with the God of the universe, and he said, listen, I think there could really be something here. I can't believe it. It's been so long since I felt this good about a potential relationship with a deity. We would want to stay with him in that feeling for now. We would also want to note to ourselves that there are some issues here that are going to have to be dealt with, just not first, not right this minute, else we risk losing letting the story be about what it's about. Believe it or not, here is where it gets tricky. <laughs> because if you have spent any time at all learning Bible stories, perhaps from a time when you were a little tight, being stuffed into itchy clothes you hated, to go to Sunday school where a big-bosomed lady who smelled like talcum powder and double-mint gum used an ancient technology called a flannel board to bounce paper dolls of white-skinned people wrapped in earth-toned robes across two-dimensional space, you have been told that Genesis 12 is about Abram, soon to be renamed Abraham, and maybe also a little bitty bit about Sarai, a.k.a. Sarah. And what I would very much like to convince you of tonight is that it is not. Not about them. Not really. Or it is about them, but only insofar as they have made a momentary appearance in a very much longer saga, a multi-generational operatic narrative that unfolds over hundreds of years with an ever-changing cast of support characters who are only important to know about because they each get a little bit of time on stage to interact with the actual main character, the capital P protagonist of the large story, the one whose name is, I will be who I will be, and whose being we are chasing down through generations of ancestors, the one whose mysterious ways we long to understand, the one whose presence we are ever after. The story in Genesis 12 is tangentially about Abraham, but like all the chapters of the 66 books of both testaments of the whole Bible, from once upon a time in Genesis 1 to, and they all lived happily ever after in Revelation, this story is always, only, ever about God. And if it is about God this story in Genesis 12, I mean. Well, then we have to remember that God has been in this story long before Abram enters stage right and will be in the story long after Abram sashays off stage left. Here is how that story, set in its larger context, goes. Once upon a time, God imagined and called into being everything that is and was rather pleased with God's self, seeing how very good it all was, until it wasn't. 
Because what God wanted more than anything else was to be in love with everything and everyone God had made and for them to be in love back. God is a romantic, as it turns out. And true romantics know if you love someone, you have to hold them lightly, meaning you can't coerce or manipulate them to love you and trust you and stay true to you because, well, because that's not love. So things got fouled up between God and everything and everyone God had made because the people into whom God had breathed God's very own spirit just weren't sure they could trust God to have their best interest at heart. They wanted to look out for themselves, try things their way for a change. And pretty soon, the very good world God loved turned into a cesspool of murder and mayhem, everyone God had made out for themselves and their own interests. And God said, this thing I used to love, I now kind of hate, and I'm so over it, I can't even, we're done. And God pressed command Z and wiped the whole thing out. Almost the whole thing. God left some remnant DNA alive, a family, some animals, apparently some plant life on tall mountain peaks. And God said to the remnant, oh, wow, that was way more trauma than I thought it would be. I'm not going to do that again. I'm really sorry. Here's a rainbow, my divine pinky swear for the rest of forever. We'll, we'll work it out. I know we will, how to love each other eventually. Now, just because God promised not to demolish the world again did not mean everything was all patched up between God and everything and everyone God had made. It's more like God just kind of said, I think I need some time alone. And God went backpacking through the cosmos to figure some things out. And then God came back. Genesis 12. God came back. And God said, Excuse me, sir, Mr. Abram, do you have a minute? And Abram, an unusually cooperative and curious soul, said, Sure, what do you need? And God said, What I need is a relationship. I got really burned last time I tried with the whole wide world, all the people, all at once. It didn't work out so well. Maybe you heard so I want to start over. I want to try again. And I think this time maybe I'll start with just one of y'all. Just, just you. And if we can figure it out, just you and me, Abram and God, God and Abram, it'll grow. I know it will. And eventually all of humanity and I will be back on good terms. In you, God said to Abram, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram said, cool, what do I have to do? God said, get your family, pack your stuff, get ready to go. Abram said, where? God said, Oof. this is the part we got stuck on last time. Here's the deal. If this is going to work, 
I'm going to need you to trust me, that I know what's good for you, that I can deliver what I promise, that I won't endanger you unnecessarily or leave you alone when you need me. I'm God. I'm God. And you're going to have to let me be who I will be. See, I have some great ideas for you, Abram, God said. Great ideas, descendants for one, which you and Sarai are going to love because you've always wanted kids, right? And for another, land, because you're going to need a place to raise that kid and hand down to your grandkids and their kids and their kids. Oh, there's going to be a lot of them. It's going to be great, man. But I can't prove that to you right now ahead of time. If I do, we kind of get into a weird sugar daddy thing. That's not really what I'm going for here. You're just gonna have to trust me, God said. Can you? Hundreds and hundreds of years later, a man named Saul read this story. Indeed, he was told it as a boy in Sabbath school. And for the whole first part of Saul's life, he understood this story to be about Abraham and Abraham's descendants, that this was the seminal story of the narrow selection of Saul's ethnic kin to be God's favorites forever. Oh, he read that story and found himself there among the privileged offspring, the great nation, an heir to Abraham's legacy of chosenness by God. And Saul became a fierce protector of that legacy, a one-man militia preserving his inherited religion against those who would defile it with a fake Messiah whose followers did not show proper respect to traditional boundaries. But then one time, Saul encountered the risen Christ, the Messiah who, as it turns out, was not fake, and he saw the light, Bible story pun intended, if you know, you know. And like Abram to Abraham, he got a tiny name change, Saul to Paul and went back to read again the stories of his ancestors in faith to see if maybe there was something he had missed in there. Imagine his surprise upon returning to Genesis 12, God's own return to relationship with humanity, God's self-introduction to Abram, reading now, Paul, with his Jesus glasses on, Imagine, through those lenses, finding there that the promise to Abraham was indeed for all the families of the earth, beyond the boundaries of blood kin, apparently. The expansion of the promised inheritance of the whole human family would have been enough to knock Paul's socks off. But for Paul, it was even more than that. What he could see now that he had never seen before <laughs> was that Abraham had no religion. Abraham had no doctrine, no theology, no Ten Commandments, not a single one. Moses comes later, much later in this story. 
Not so much as a love thy neighbor as thyself. None of it. His whole life, Paul, formerly known as Saul, had based his life on pleasing God by doing religion right. Even if, as he must have thought for at least a minute after his conversion on that road to Damascus, even if adopting Jesus as his Messiah was the way to do it right. Because, he thought, isn't that what God wants more than anything else? For us to know the rules and follow the rules and do religion right. Isn't that where we get our righteousness? But see, by definition, Abraham could not do any of that. There was no religion for him to join. It did not exist. There were no rules for him to follow. There were no right or wrong beliefs for him to hold. As Paul read Genesis 12 all over again, all he could see now was verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Paul read a few more chapters in Genesis 2, more than we have time for tonight, and eventually landed on Genesis 15, verse 6. It's yet another place where God has been reiterating the promises of descendants and land to Abram. And the narrator says, and Abram believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that's the line that gets quoted in Romans 4, our responsive reading from earlier tonight, where Paul is explaining, nay, insisting, that the only human righteousness God has any interest in, the only thing old Abraham ever did right, is that we believe God, not believe in God, that's different, but that we believe God. That we trust God to know what's good for us and trust that God can deliver what God promises and trust that God won't endanger us unnecessarily and trust God not to leave us alone when we need God. We have to trust God to be God so that like Abram believing God, that trust is reckoned to us as to him as righteousness. That is, God has glasses, too, for looking at us. And through those glasses, God sees our trust as righteousness, not our religion as righteousness, not our doctrine as righteousness, not our moral uprightness or our coming to church or our wokeness as righteousness, but our trust that God does what God promises God will do, our belief that God gets everything God wants and that what God wants is good for us and good for the whole wide world, God still, for God's own reasons, still loves. That is our righteousness. That's how we get right with God. I don't know if we're supposed to find that easier or harder. <laughs> this trust as righteousness, as God's way of loving us. In this grueling season of waiting. Waiting for sanity to prevail in our country waiting for a vaccine to bring us back together again, 
waiting for the restoration of our emotional and spiritual health after so many depleting months, we have in some sense entered the Abraham and Sarah zone where promises have been made but not yet kept by the Almighty who wants nothing more than our trust. You might remember that the promise of descendants for those two was threatened more than twice. I mean, they almost did not get even a descendant. They were old and it kept not happening and they got so desperate to get what God promised that they exploited one of those persons they had acquired in Haran to get themselves a baby. Hagar, say her name. The original Handmaid's Tale, literally. And then once they got a child, Isaac, God, the capital P protagonist, demanded Isaac's life on an altar, and Abraham, the trusting, was ready to do it till God stayed his shaky hand and gave him a ram to slaughter instead. That's weird. And of course, they never got that land Not in Abraham and Sarah's lifetime. Those two were long-term campers, parking their RV on other people's property for the duration of their lives, for real. Abraham actually had to buy a field with a cave on it to bury Sarah when she died because he still had no property to call his own. I just think the fact of these promises barely fulfilled or unfulfilled goes toward the earlier point here that This is not really a story about Abraham. It's a story about God. About God starting over with humanity by starting with just one human. It's a story about God promising that God is in it with all of us for the long haul. It's a story about God asking for nothing more than our trust right now concerning things that may yet be far off in the distance. Whether God is a reliable keeper of promises, whether God is faithful to God's own word, well, this is the central question about our capital P protagonist for the whole rest of the Bible and for the whole rest of our lives, generation after generation, day after day, time after time. God will reckon our trust as righteousness. All we need to do is believe God. And God says, can you? Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps, 
And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.